0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. So we continue this summer, summer special that we've done the last two or three summers, of taking a break from one of the Bible books and looking at practical and relevant issues in our life and what the Bible has to say about that topic. And it's been a, a delightful time to do that, have had great feedback from People as we go, topic by topic, studying God's Word together to see what God has to say on various issues. And I got input from the saints last summer, and even the summer before, and had so many topics, couldn't do them all in one summer. So this is a carryover, actually, today from last summer, where we had several people, and even again recently, say, let's talk about fasting. What does the Bible have to say about fasting? And that intrigued me, uh, and I was looking forward to doing that. I've never taught us i've never preached a sermon on fasting i've never taught a sunday school lesson on fasting just by itself so it was actually exciting for me actually more than the last week it's been a a while that i've been studying fasting what the bible has to say about it because it's something that i hadn't ever studied exhaustively and i quickly found that it was a challenge to study it i mean it's easy to study it but wow distilling it down and communicating it in a way in 45 minutes or less. That's the challenge with fasting. So it was a topic that was more challenging than most for me, and one of the reasons for that is because there are all kinds of examples of people fasting in the Bible, but there is very little information from God uh, telling us mandates for it, why we should do it, when we should do it, if we should do it at all. So that was the challenge. As a matter of fact, uh, I was talking to someone this week who had been a believer for decades and re- the topic of fasting came up, not because I brought it up, but because they brought it up. And I said, you've been a Christian a long time. Let me ask you a question. How many times do you think God mandated or required his people in the law of Moses to have regular ongoing annual fasts in the law of Moses? What do you think? And they said, oh, it's got to be 2030. I said, "Nope. Uh, higher. No, as a matter of fact. One. That's it. They were shocked, couldn't believe it, didn't believe me. I said, that's good, go study your Bible. Um, one? But fasting's all over the Bible. Yeah, fasting is all over the Bible. But the question was how many official, proscriptive decrees and commands did God give to his people in the law of Moses, Genesis through uh, the first five books, especially those required fasts, whether it's annual, regular, Once a year and it was only one and that's even disputed and we're going to look at that. That was the day of atonements and some scholars would say, no, it wasn't required at all. There is not the the word fast and is never even in the passage. So we're going to look at that. You can make up your own mind. So it could very well be that in the entire Old Testament with respect to the law of Moses given to the nation of Israel, God never commanded his people to fast on a regular ongoing annual basis ever was not required of the law. In the days of Moses, and if you think about that in Moses 1400 BC in the book of Exodus and on, what about the book of Genesis? Uh, you never read about Abraham fasting ever. The great patriarchs, you don't really see them fasting. It's not something that God is commanding them to do. None of the great saints are being commanded to fast. Joseph was never commanded to fast. Yet these are all commanded of great men of God, they're commended for prayer and faith and other disciplines Go to Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 11, and all the great saints of the ages, not one of them is commended for fasting ever. They're commended for other things, prayer, suffering, being a godly testimony. Um, So that was one of the most interesting things that, that stood out in a stark way in my mind as I've been studying fasting, because I had the same assumption going into my study that certainly there had to be several fasts that were required in the Levitical law for God's people That God gave to Moses and the answer was no actually zero so that may surprise you as it did my friend but let's go ahead and look to God's word and I tried to summarize all of my information down into five points the last one really just kind of practical application for us so it's really hinging on these four main big points that I want to make and I'm not going to say everything there is to say about fasting in the Bible there's just too much stuff Uh, but at least give you some parameters and guidelines but I want to start with Romans chapter 15 verse 4. Let's look at this. Romans 15:4. So I'm scouring the Old Testament, getting out my Hebrew Bible. I'm scouring the New Testament, looking at my Greek New Testament, just trying to find some specific commands from God of when we are supp- when we're supposed to fast. And the more important question really is why we should fast. I actually never found that answer in the Bible. Why we should fast? I came to a conclusion. I came to a deduction of why we should, but I didn't see an explicit reason from God why He wants us to fast. Which brings me to Romans fifteen four, um, where Paul says to Christians, "For whatever was written in earlier times." Okay, he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. Okay, so as Christians, we, God has given us the Old Testament as a gift for many reasons. One of the practical reasons God gave us the Old Testament written record is for what this truth highlights in verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. There it is as Christians. One of the benefits of reading the Old Testament is to be instructed by way primarily of example. I mean, there's commands and those kind of things, but there's also examples, especially in the narrative. So much of the Old Testament is narrative, and we are reading a story of how Moses lived, what he did, Sometimes God doesn't even comment on it. And much of the Old Testament is that. It's narrative. And we read these stories, and one of the intentions is God wants us to read these stories for our instruction. We're supposed to learn, and one of the things is we're supposed to learn from modeling. That's actually how I had to approach fasting, because I wasn't finding my answers. It's like, okay, well, we got the fasting is very. God doesn't talk about fasting anywhere as to why we should do it and how often we should do it, but fasting is all over the Bible being modeled by godly people. It's also being modeled by ungodly people. People in the Bible fast for wrong reasons. God condemns it. People fast for the correct reasons. God blesses it. And we're going to look at those examples. So that's why Romans 15.4 is so important. For whatever was written in earlier times, the Old Testament was written for our instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So my prayer is that we can have hope from studying the saints of the past, especially in the Old Testament, of how they dealt with fasting, how they modeled fasting. And if there's any carryover of practical uh, implications that we can put into our own life as modern-day Christians, I think there is. And we're going to go ahead and look at those. So, great reminder from Romans 15.4. So, point number one of the four main points I want to give you is I want to look at the required fasts, both the Old Testament and New Testament. But before I do, uh, a little more introductory information. I think because there is a minimal amount of information in the Bible from God as to why we should fast and when we should fast. I think it's one of the reasons why there's so much confusion about what fasting is and why you should do it. There's a lot of confusion. I mean, you can just look at some of the best-selling Christian discipline books that have been written for the last 30 years, and you have a wide range of opinion about why you should fast, when you should fast, if you should fast at all. From one end of the spectrum to the other, all the way to this is the most spiritual thing and enlightening thing and mystical life changing thing you can do. And it's demanded and required from God and it'll uh, catapult you to a higher level of spirituality all the way to the other spectrum of evangelical saying, well, it is nowhere commanded in the New Testament. And that is true. Therefore, Christians don't need to fast, shouldn't even fast, should have nothing to do with it. Those are two extremes and everything in between. And the reason is, is because all we've got are models and examples. And then you have to kind of come to your own conclusion. What is going on here? How does this apply to me? That's not easy to do. But we do have some guidelines and we'll take note of those. We will just simply saying this, we will make a priority of the things that Jesus made a priority regarding fasting. That's the easiest way to do it. And it really simplifies things. But there is great confusion even in the evangelical Christian world on what fasting is. Whatever, John Piper wrote a great best-selling book on fasting probably, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. I started reading it, got to the first chapter, 300 pages to go, put it down depressed. I'm not going going to keep reading Uh, because it was so convicting, so challenging, so uh, it was a good book, edifying book. But uh, for whatever reason, I couldn't go on. Maybe it was the candy bar sitting next to me. I I don't know what the problem was. And others have written. Richard Foster wrote a discipline book. Fasting is in there. I wrote a book on spiritual disciplines. Fasting is not mentioned in there. Um, and then you've got every, just about every major religion of the world fasts and requires fast, and they are mandatory. That's what sets the religions of the world apart from biblical Christianity. The Bible never demands or requires from God specifically as compulsory specific fasts. Never. False religion, just about every single one of them, requires fasting, demands it. And then you got to ask, well, why? And if you study it all the way from Hinduism, that requires fasting. And Mahamas Gandhi from the 1930s was known for his fast for 30 or three weeks of hunger. And that's part and parcel of Hinduism. And the idea that somehow if you fast, you can it leads to greater spirituality. Uh, Buddhism has teachings on fasting, some of it compulsory, especially for the leaders in Buddhism. And Buddha, who fasted apparently, supposedly, didn't lose any weight, but anyway, he fasted. Um, so there was Buddha, Hinduism, uh, Mormonism has fasting that is required and compulsory. It's mentioned in the Doctrine of Covenants a couple of times, also in the Book of Mormon. Uh, I think their fast is on the first Sunday of the month to skip uh, one or two meals, and it is to earn righteousness before God. Doing a religious deed to earn righteousness. See, these are all contrary to the basic grace message of biblical Christianity. You can do nothing in and of yourself to please God, to earn His favor, to take care of your sins. It is all a gift, a gracious, undeserved gift of God. So fasting can be, from a biblical point of view, have nothing to do with that. If you're fasting and you think you're earning God's favor or manipulating Him or moving Him or He is impressed... You're fasting for the wrong reason. We'll see that from Jesus' point of view. Roman Catholicism, I grew up as a Roman Catholic for 18 years. I grew up with required compulsory fasts my entire life, uh, particularly during the days of Lent, which is a 40-day time period before Easter to commemorate the time Jesus was in the desert and fasted for 40 days. And especially on the Friday of Lent, you're supposed to fast, abstain from meat all day and then uh, other things that you choose to fast from. That's how I was raised. That's how I was taught. I was taught to believe that if you fast, especially during that 40-day period, you are earning forgiveness of sin. You are earning righteousness from God. God is pleased with you. You impress God by doing that. That's wrong thinking. But that is at the backbone of just about every conceivable religion. So that's really its roots in paganism is that this idea that you can appease the gods by abstaining from whatever, be it food or anything else, to try to impress the gods, to manipulate them. That's not the biblical approach. So let's go ahead and look at point number one, required fast. And just a basic definition I put there, uh, the Hebrew word sum, sum, uh, to keep the mouth shut, literally. Sum, hey son, sum. To keep the mouth shut, and it's applied to fasting. Interesting, this word is never uh, appears in the literature of Moses. Genesis to Deuteronomy. It's later on in the Old Testament. And then the Greek New Testament, nasteo, uh, just simply means not to eat, to abstain from eating. Then there's actually clinical definitions of fasting even today. that Those who are professionals in that area, the clinical definition of a fast is abstaining from food or water and or both for a period of up to 8 to 12 hours. 8 to 12 hours. That makes sense because, you know, you go to bed at night, you don't eat anything during that 8 hours, you wake up, you've gone 8 hours without eating, You haven't. that's a fast, technically and clinically speaking, and then you break the fast by eating your Cheerios. Break fast. Breakfast. That's why breakfast is called breakfast. It's breaking the fast. But clinically they say anywhere going from 8 to 12 hours, is a fast. So most people sleep for eight hours and then I guess teenagers sleep for 12. But anyway, uh, 8 to 12. I just thought that was interesting. That's where we get our word breakfast from, breaking the fast. Have you fasted lately? Yeah, I slept for eight hours last night. Well, that's cheating. That's not spiritual. So let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, A biblical definition of fasting is just simply abstaining from food or specific drink for really an undefined time, for religious purposes. Because always, it's always for a religious spiritual purpose in the Bible. At least legitimate examples that are given. And there's a diversity of what those religious purposes are, but we'll look at those examples and uh, then come to a conclusion. So required fasts, starting in the Old Testament. Old Testament required fasts. Well, there is really there's only one required fast in the entire Bible, we think. And it's suspect. It might not even be required Even Hebrew scholars will disagree. Some will say, well, this probably does refer to fasting. And many will say, absolutely not. This is not a required fast. And that's in Leviticus 16.29, an annual feast. It was an annual feast. By the way, God specifically told His people to not fast during feast time. So there's probably the biggest argument of why God was not asking His people to fast at the time of the Day of Atonement. Because it was one of the festivals. Uh, but let's look at it anyway. You can look at the terminology. So if you've got you know, one of the five major, major translations in your English Bible, you might get different wording on this. Whether you have the New American Standard, King James, New King James, the ESV or the NIV, they're going to vary. But not one of those five translations is going to have the word fast in this passage. It's not going to mention food. So you might be scratching your head thinking, where do they get fasting out of this verse? So let's look at it. Leviticus 16. 29 is talking about the Day of Atonement, uh, one of the greatest annual feast days for the people of God, which was the Day of Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur. Yom is the word for day. Kippur is to cover, to smear, to smear blood, to cover, to smear pitch on Noah's Ark. It's the same word, the Day of Atonement, the Day of Covering, the Day of Smearing, the Day of Blood, the Day of Expiation. Which is a picture when Jesus Christ would come, he would cover his people with his blood so that their sins would be forgiven. This is a picture of the very meaning and reason why Jesus would come. Very important feast day, the Day of Atonement. And God is telling Moses to tell his people how they should celebrate it. And look at verse 29. And this shall be a, the Day of Atonement shall be a permanent statute for you. And in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, You shall humble your souls, says the New American Standard. There it is. You shall humble your souls. If you have the NIV, I think it says deny yourself or something else. Humble your souls. Well, what does that mean? Well, I don't know. And do not do any work. It was a Sabbath. Whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. So that is the closest thing to a command in the entire Bible to to fasting, and I personally don't believe that means fasting, because it can mean so many different things. Um, Isaiah 58 uh, is a similar phrase that could include fasting, so it's possible. So this, but the point is that phrase, that Hebrew phrase, "Humble your souls." It can include fasting, but it definitely doesn't mean only fasting, because it includes other things in other passages. So it's just kind of an umbrella statement that God made: humble yourselves, afflict your soul. And that can be manifest in many different ways. But that is it. That's supposedly the command in the entire Old Testament of a specific annual fast that God required of His people. And again, I said, it's debatable. As a matter of fact, uh, one good scholar in the Wycliffe Bible Dictionary says this, God never seems to command His people to fast regularly. Never. That's what He said. And He's got reason to say that. He goes on, the Old Testament stresses rather the positive enjoyment of God and His blessings with gladness of heart. That's the emphasis. God is not impressed with the act of fasting, especially when it does not signify turning from strife and oppression. Isaiah 58, 3 and 5. Instead, fasting is acceptable only if it eventuates in acts of social justice and true charity, as Isaiah 58 says, and only if the motive for self-denial is one of love and desire to help the poor. Isaiah 58, 6 through 11. That's an important statement. The Old Testament, God never seems to command His people to fast regularly, God allows fasting, God blesses fasting, God responds to fasting, but He doesn't command it as obligatory. There's the difference. The Old Testament stresses rather the positive enjoyment of God and His blessings with gladness of heart. And let's look at two passages in Ecclesiastes that this author gives that I think are great just to typify it. He gives about ten. We'll look at just two. Because some people wrongly think that some food is bad, whether it's meat or a certain kind of meat or it's pork or whatever, that those are unclean we shouldn't be eating them. Acts chapter 10 is clear. The Gospel of Mark is clear. Jesus' words are clear that he gave us freedom to eat anything. We are not bound by the Levitical laws of Moses anymore. Arise, Peter, kill and eat. Eat that bacon. It is good. That's what Jesus said. So food is not bad. Food is good. Food is a gift from God. We're going to see that in 1 Timothy. But Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 12, listen to this. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice. Now this is talking about people and the people of God. This is like a philosophy of life verse. You should write this down and put it in your pocket or on your dashboard or your mirror at home. This is good with God. This will alleviate your prohibitive conscience. If you enjoy life. If you catch yourself enjoying life. Oh, I'm not supposed to do that. Verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice. Like that song we were singing earlier. Rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime as a believer. Moreover, that every man, woman, child who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, it is the gift of God. See that? Food and enjoying food as a byproduct of your hard labor is a gift from God. So food is not inherently evil. Food is good. Food is a gift from God. Um, I'm not going to go to the other one, Ecclesiastes, because it pretty much says the same thing. But I do want to go to... Let's look at 1 Timothy, chapter 4. Keep that in mind. So, you know, if people come... And there's plenty of spiritual discipline books and Christian books that have been written that say that uh, fasting is good, fasting is spiritual, fasting or actually abstaining from certain foods is what God requires. Christians should abstain from meat. I've seen that. There's a best-selling Christian book saying we should only eat vegetables. We've talked about that last summer. That is not true. But there's a lot of Christians who say that and believe it. And this passage addresses it. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to this. But the Holy Spirit says... The, whole, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, in later days, 2,000 years later, we are in those days. We are here. We fulfill this prophecy. This is you. This is me. But the Spirit explicitly says that in 2011... Some will fall away from the faith. They will be false teachers. What will they be doing? They will be paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. They're going to fall into the trap of satanic, misleading, deceptive, spiritual, and religious teaching. And it's put in the garb of religious biblical language. That's why it is so deceitful. Sounds good, man. That sounds, hey, they quoted a Bible verse. That's what this is talking about. But these, the origin of it are doctrines of demons. And he mentions two demonic doctrines that spiritual people and even the church are going to succumb to and actually believe. Well, what is it? Verse 2, By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. These are false religious teachers. Here are the false things that they teach. They forbid marriage. So they take abstinence and elevate it up here. That abstinence and remaining single for the rest of your life is more virtuous, spiritual, and important than being married. That's what it's talking about. This is a categorical raising up of abstinence. That's where the Roman Catholic priesthood came from. You can't get married. That's exactly what this is talking about. That is false doctrine. It is demonic. It is dangerous. It is very hurtful. It destroys people's lives. So that's the first one. Men who forbid marriage. What else do they do? Well, they advocate abstaining from foods. There it is. They advocate fasts. They mandate fasts. They say that certain fasts are obligatory. And Paul says that is satanic. That is demonic. Don't believe it. And again, it's deceitful because it's done in religious, spiritual, biblical terms. How practical is that? We see that today in our culture all over the place. And Paul, on the other hand, says don't believe it when people are trying to tell you to abstain from certain foods because it's religious and spiritual. That is wrong. That's a wrong view of food, because the middle of verse 3, Paul says, God made sex and marriage, and God also made food, which God has created, He created both of them, to be gratefully shared in and practiced by those who believe and know the truth. Food is good, for everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. That's why we pray before we eat. This is a biblical mandate to do it. We pray before we eat. We thank God for the food. God, please sanctify this food. For it is sanctified by the means of the Word of God and prayer. That's why we pray. We should pray before we eat. Absolutely, all the time. Jesus always prayed before He ate. Every single time in the Gospels. So why shouldn't we? So there are wrong reasons to fast. Uh, But that was all introduction. Going back to number one, required fasts. The only one that we can uh, say that was a possibility was the Day of Atonement. Uh, And that was Annual. Leviticus 16:29. Well, what about special fasts? Well, here's where we have a lot of examples. So follow with me as we move quickly. I got dozens, but I'll only share a few. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 9. And this is Moses. Okay, Bible trivia. What's the longest fast in the Bible, where somebody lived to tell about it? Forty days. Who, who had 40-day fasts? Well, three people: Moses, Jesus, Elijah. And apparently Moses did it two times. Two times he did a 40 day fast. This is one of those. And let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 9. So Moses has had his uh, 40 year ministry of going through the desert. He's at the end of his life. He's about to lead them into the promised land. And now he's given the second law, or the law the second time, to his people, reminding them of what God expects. And he's reminding them of a little history of how he kept going up on that mountain, Mount Horeb, to meet God face to face in a way that nobody else was able to. And verse 9. At the end of verse 9 in Deuteronomy 9, Moses reminds the people, at that time when I was up there for 40 days and 40 nights, I neither ate bread nor drank water. For 40 days. Well, how long can the human body go without food or water? Well, we found out with Terry Shivo not long ago. People said, well, she can only go five, six days. No, she went like three weeks. But 40 days would still be a miracle. And that's exactly what this is. This is a supernatural miracle from God. I don't think anybody could go 40 days without food and water and live. It'd be really hard today. And well, how could Moses do that? Well, God, if you read uh, Exodus 34, s- similar incident where Moses fasted for 40 days and 40 nights without bread and water. And it says, and he was with the Lord. He was with Yahweh. That's how it happened. He was with the almighty creator of the universe. He can do miracles. So he sustained and nurtured Moses. So yeah, it's possible because God does miracles. And this was a miracle that Moses did that. This is the closest I could find in Scripture as to why somebody, why somebody fasted. Because Moses goes on. Remember that when I was up there on the hill? By, by the way, when I was up there, I fasted for 40 days, 40 nights, without food, without water. Skip to Deuteronomy 9:18. Then God revealed that they were in great sin, all the people. Two million people compromising. While Moses is up on the mountain getting the law of God, two million Jews are down there breaking the law of God. While Moses is up there face to face worshiping the one true God, two million Jews are down there worshiping a false God. God got very angry. Deuteronomy 9.18 Moses said, I fell down before the Lord. I fell down prostrate on His face as at the first 40 days and nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. Here's the key word. Because, here it is, here's why he fasted. Here's what motivated him. I fasted that long because all of all your sin which you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord Yahweh to provoke him to, angry, uh, to be angry. For I was afraid of the anger and his hot displeasure with which the Lord was wrathful against you in order to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me when I prayed and fasted. That time also. And the Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. Can you imagine? God was just going to snuff Aaron out. And Moses prayed, interceded on behalf of Aaron. Saved his life. God decided not to wipe Aaron out. I also prayed for Aaron at that time. So there's Moses fasting two different times, 40 days, and he did it in conjunction with prayer as he was interceding for sinners, pleading with God. Pleading with God. Now let's look at Ezra chapter 8. I love this passage. Uh, Ezra is after the 70-year captivity. The Jews have been in Babylon as prisoners for 70 years. Now it's time to go back. And then they go back in three phases over the course of... 80 to 100 years. And Ezra has round number two in the 400s, 460-ish. He's taken them from Babylon back to Jerusalem, 500 miles with thousands of Jews. And it's very dangerous to do that because there were just robbers and muggers all along the way. So many people could lose their lives. They could be robbed and they were very vulnerable. And, and Ezra knew that, that journey. And so this is what he did. Is he's going to lead thousands of Jews back to the promised land because he has the freedom and blessing of the king to do so. And then in Ezra chapter 8, uh, verse 15, it says, He assembled all the people there at the river. They're about to take off. But before he leaves with thousands of people and he knows it's going to be dangerous, what does he do as a believer? He was a great man of God. He prayed. Let's pray. Let's pray for travel mercies. When was the last time you prayed for travel mercies? Or especially when you have children who drive all the more. God, be gracious. Not because they're bad and dangerous, but they're with a whole bunch of other people that are bad and dangerous. God, be merciful, and that's what this is—a travel mercies prayer by Ezra, and he's very specific in the prayer. Uh, look at verse 21, Ezra 8:21. Then uh, I, Ezra, I proclaimed. So he's being the spiritual leader. I proclaimed a fast. He, this was not required of God. This was spontaneous. And that's the thing you see about fasting all throughout the Bible. It's almost always spontaneous, based on a specific need. So I proclaimed a fast with this group there at the river that we might humble ourselves. That's key. You've got to have the right attitude when you are fasting in prayer. Humility before God. Proclaimed a fast that we might humble ourselves before our God. First here was the specific purpose to seek from him a safe journey. How practical is that? That's great, isn't it? Travel mercy. God, keep us safe. We've got to go 500 miles. We're vulnerable. We've got children. It's going to take a long time. God, help us. So they're praying. They are fasting. They're seeking God very specifically and deliberately. They seek God for a safe journey for us. Our little ones. There it is. The children. Our little ones. All of our possessions. We don't want a flat tire on the way. Very specific. And get this, he's very honest. Verse 22, For I was ashamed to request from the king who's letting us go, uh, to request troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy along the way because we had told the king the hand of our God is favorably disposed to those who seek Him, but His power and His anger are against all those who forsake Him. So Ezra felt bad. He didn't want to ask the king for for protection because he said, My God will protect me. And then he was starting to get nervous. Boy, I hope God protects me. After I said that, verse 23, So we fasted and sought our God. So fasted is almost synonymous with prayer here. So we fasted and prayed and sought our God concerning this matter. Get this, verse 23. And He listened to our prayer. God answered their prayer and got them 500 miles there safely. God responded to their prayers of humility. It was coupled with fasting. And then in the next chapter, Ezra chapter 8. Uh, so they get there in Jerusalem and all of a sudden somebody comes and tells Ezra, man, all the Levites and the people of Israel are intermingling and they're marrying the wrong people. and They're committing adultery and worshiping false gods and they're doing abominations in the middle of verse 1. And then it says uh, that Ezra, when he heard this, he was grieved, tore his clothes. One uh, The English translation says he prayed and fasted on behalf of them, interceding for sinners. Uh, let's look at Mordecai in Esther chapter 4 if you go back in your Bible or after Nehemiah, sorry, two books ahead. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Esther chapter 4. So Mordecai was the uh, relative of Esther who would become queen. Mordecai was like the spiritual caretaker, a Jew, a man of faith. And then his nemesis was Haman who hated the Jews. He was uh, Hitler before Hitler was ever around. And Haman, who was second to the king, got the king to sign a decree that all Jews should be annihilated, holocaust, Mordecai heard about the decree and became extremely grieved because he knew that him and all of his people there in that land would be wiped out. And Esther 4 4.1 says this, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes. Tore his clothes. Put on sackcloth. That was like a gunny sack made of camel's hair or sheepskin. Just very rough and stinky. Put on sackcloth. It was a sign of mourning, of sadness, of Bitterness he put on sackcloth and ashes put dirt from the ground and ashes on his head on his hands and he wept out into the oh he went out into the midst of the city and he wailed loudly and bitterly out loud publicly and he went as far as the king's gate for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth and in each and every province for the command and decree of the king came to kill the Jews. There was great mourning among the Jews with fasting. There it is. With fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Interesting, the word prayer is not mentioned there. So here's an example where people were fasting and no prayer is mentioned. It could be that fasting was synonymous with prayer. We don't know. But the point is, a common denominator with respect to fasting is, is in times of sorrow, bitterness, mourning. It's not a time of happy celebration. That's why God said, I don't want you fasting on feast days. Those are times of celebration. So that was uh, Mordecai. Let's look. Uh, just so you know, there were wrong, time, wrong kinds of fast. Jezebel, the most wicked woman in the Bible, she decreed a fast in 1 Kings chapter 21. Her husband, who was also an evil man, Ahab, let's look at him, 1 Kings 21. This is very interesting. 1 uh, Kings, right at the end of the book, chapter 21, Jezebel calls a fast together because she wants certain people there and when they get there, they kill them. And then Ahab, he's uh, her husband, he's evil. And God sends Elijah to rebuke Ahab and God tells uh, Ahab, you're going to die. I'm going to kill you. I, God, I am going to kill you. I'm going to kill your wife. I'm going to spill your blood. You will have no descendants. That's what Elijah told him. Ahab was overwhelmed by the news. Ahab believed Elijah's words were from God. Look at how Ahab responded to the bad news. By the way, look at verse 25 in 1 Kings 21. Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. This was one bad, evil dude. Certainly, if he ever prayed, God wouldn't hear the prayer. Well, look at verse 27. That's why it's so interesting. It came about when Ahab heard these words from Elijah that he was going to die and his wife was going to die because God was going to kill him, that he tore his clothes They still do that in the Middle East, in sorrow and in mourning. He put on sackcloth. And get this Ahab fasted along with prayer. He fasted and he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently, sad, bitter. Verse 28, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Now here's God talking. Verse 29, God says, Do you see, Elijah, how Ahab has humbled himself? Isn't that amazing? Ahab was evil. Yet Ahab humbled himself, he prayed and he fasted. Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? We don't know if Ahab went to heaven or not. This is not necessarily a salvation experience. Nevertheless, God goes on in verse 29. Because Ahab has humbled himself before me. I will not bring the evil in his days, but I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. There was mercy from God on an unbeliever. And God responded to the fasting and prayer. That is amazing. That is a gracious God who reigns good on both the just and the unjust, doesn't he? The common grace of of God in Ahab's life. Well, we don't have time to go on, but I'll just tell you other people who who prayed. Hannah fasted in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1, and she simply fasted because she was so sad with bitterness, she just didn't feel like eating. She prayed and she didn't eat food, it said. She was grieving because she didn't have a child, couldn't get pregnant. Uh, Samuel prayed for his people, and he interceded for their sinfulness of disobeying God and worshiping Baal. And so Samuel called a spontaneous fast before God, and he prayed to God. And and the people were convicted, and they repented of their sin. They confessed, and it said they fasted and prayed, and God was merciful to them. So again, the common denominator is in the times of repentance, confession of sin, hearing the Word of God, being convicted, uh, mourning, sadness, the death of someone, pleading with God, asking for His grace, pleading for somebody else because of their sin. Uh, Jonathan ate no food uh, when Saul was trying to kill David one time and Saul threw his spear and tried to kill Saul and it says that David would eat no food because he was grieving for his friend David. So times of grief and intercession. Uh, David was the one who fasts more than anybody in the Bible. All over the place. The Psalms and, and Scripture. And I think that's because David was a man after God's own heart. Uh, David fasted more than anybody because fasting goes hand-in-hand hand with prayer. and wor- Fasting goes hand-in-hand hand with worship. And David was a man of worship. He was a worship leader. Fasting goes hand-in-hand hand with sorrow and pain. David's life was filled with personal tragedy, sorrow, and pain. Uh, fasting goes with persecution. David was persecuted by Saul and on the run for Years. So everything about David's life is the quintessential example of how a believer and why a believer might practice fasting, integrating it with their prayer life, their worship before God, their dependence upon God. And that's what David did. In times of intercession, David uh, committed a great sin and he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then Bathsheba became pregnant and then God said, I'm going to kill that child. I'm going to kill that baby. That's what God said. The baby was born. The baby became very sick in the first week of its life. And David, it said, he fasted for a week on behalf of that little baby. Fasted, ate no food, pleading with God. Talked to no one. And then the baby died. And then it says immediately, I want food. And they gave him food. And they're saying, why are you eating food? Your baby just died. And he said, well, I thought that while he was sick and while still alive, that God might hear me while I fasted and prayed. But he's he's dead. So life goes on. God answered my prayer and God said no. The baby didn't live. So David was a great model of fasting and prayer with pure, legitimate worship and proper motives. And that's really the key of fasting. So a lot of Old Testament examples, but that's mostly where they are. Uh, Which leads us to the next point, so let's go there. Um, Required fasts in the Old Testament, just one maybe, and then special examples of spontaneous fasts in times of sorrow, and then... B, New Testament required fasts. None. You can write that in the blank. Zero. There are none for Christians. They're not mandated. They're not required. When are Christians required to fast? The answer is not at all from God, specifically speaking. But when can they fast? All the time. Occasions for fasting. Uh, I mentioned this already, and we've seen that in some of our examples. The common denominators. Fasting was practiced spontaneously with prayer once without prayer, with confession, with mourning, with sorrow and bitterness, when interceding for others' sins, also when making specific requests for oneself and others, with sackcloth and other outward acts like pouring water on the ground, with ashes, with dirt, lying prostrate for part of a day, for half a day, for an entire day, for many days. For a week, for many weeks, for three weeks, for 40 days? Individually, corporately? point is, boy, we've got a lot of latitude, example, uh, and freedom and flexibility in how fasting is being modeled. Because it's a very personal thing. And it's to be catered to the personal circumstances of every person's life. That's the beauty of it. So those are the occasions for fasting. Mostly a time of sorrow. Time of sorrow. Number three, Jesus on fasting. Um, I already mentioned letter A. He practiced one time in his 33 years on life that we know of, uh, unless he did the Day of Atonement. But during his three-and-a-half-year public ministry, we only know of him fasting one time, and that was actually even before he began his formal ministry. Baptized by John the Baptist, goes out in the desert, didn't eat food for 40 days and 40 nights. God the Father sustained him supernaturally for those 40 days, tempted three times, overcame those temptations, came back, began his public ministry. So only one time did Jesus ever fast. Uh, what about his teaching? There's very little about Jesus' teaching. Look at Matthew 17. And depending upon your English Bible, uh, you're going to get different readings. You might be surprised. You might be confused. Matthew 17:20 20 to 22. In the New American Standard Bible here that I have, um, Jesus sent His disciples out to do ministry and miracles, and there's a miracle they couldn't do. Uh, verse 19, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast out that demon? And then Jesus said in uh, Matthew 17:20, Jesus said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith, because you didn't have faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain move from here to there and it shall move and nothing shall be impossible for you. Verse 21 says but this kind of but this kind of faith does not go oh but this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now in the New American Standard Bible that verse is in brackets. I think the NIV and the ESV just skip 21 altogether. It's not even there. But the King James, the New King James don't have this in brackets. The point being in my margin says when Jesus said that this happens as a result of prayer and fasting, it says the best and earliest Greek manuscripts don't have this verse. This was, this was a comment added centuries later by some well-meaning monk in a cave who couldn't see straight because the candle was so dim. And he was an aesthetic and was into practicing fasting for the wrong reason and literally wrote that in the margin or a commentary. And then his uh, scroll got mixed up and transcribed so that eventually it leaked into the Bible. This doesn't mean your Bible's not not inerrant because we know why it's in there. But that's why in my New American Standard, it's in brackets. This verse doesn't belong here. It's not an original. So actually, that means that Jesus hardly ever talked about fasting. And the only time that he did at length was the passage we read earlier, so let's look at it. And this will be a good reminder and exhortation for us. Because I would encourage you to fast after the manner of David and other saints in the Old Testament and the Apostle Paul who did a couple of times and do it. And the most important thing is your motive. Why are you doing it? What is your heart's desire You can't manipulate God. That's not the point. It's not to be noticed by other people. That's not the point. Fasting is not for God. Fasting is for you as the believer. To help you focus and concentrate on prayer. To help you focus and concentrate on being sufficient, dependent upon God and His strength and not your own. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, starting at verse 16, And whenever you fast, if you do. So it's a freedom. It's a liberty. It's not a command. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites, the Pharisees, they publicly announce it and let the whole world know that they're fasting. Or they neglect their appearance in order to be seen fasting by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, believer, if you truly know God, when you fast, if you fast, anoint your head, wash your face. The, the idea is don't let anybody know you're fasting. You don't need to. I mean, if they find out, that's okay, but you don't need to publicize it. It's not the point. Anoint your head. Um, Wash your face so that, you may be seen, so that you may not be seen fasting by men, but by your Father God who is in secret. That's the whole point. It's between you and God. And your Father who sees in secret, He will repay you. He will answer your prayer with a yes or a no. And it's not because you fasted. The fasting helps you in your concentration in prayer, among other things. So that's Jesus' whole point. It's the motive. Why are you fasting if you do fast? There's nothing mystical about it. There's nothing super spiritual about it. Some Christians think that. And that that got infiltrated through Pentecostal charismatic theology, that fasting is this higher level of Christianity, where you can be a super Christian if you fast and get things other Christians can't get. It's not true. It's not in the Bible. So it all comes down to our heart attitude. So Jesus' teaching and His practice is very limited. Uh, One more. Look at Luke 18. Jesus is teaching a, a parable, maybe based on a true story of two guys that He knew. One was a hypocritical religious Pharisee of a Jew who had the Old Testament memorized. And the other was this pathetic tax gatherer of a sinner who was not well refined or sophisticated as a religious person. And Luke 18, verse 9, and Jesus told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves, thinking they were righteous. So he's saying this for the benefit of these hypocritical, arrogant Pharisees, because they viewed other people with contempt. So Jesus says in verse 10, Two men went up into the temple to pray. Okay, prayer, that's the issue. One a Pharisee, the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, Dear me! And then he says, God, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Boy, there's a good prayer. I thank you that I am not like other people, those swindlers, those unjust, those adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer over here. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. Mondays and Thursdays, New Testament scholars believe that Mondays and Thursdays was the days that the Pharisees practiced a mandatory compulsory fast. I fast twice a week, keeping in mind that was not required in the Old Testament. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax uh, but the tax gatherer standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his head to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, be gracious to me, forgive me of my sin. That's his only prayer. He didn't give a litany of all the things that he did to impress God. It was a broken and contrite heart. It was with true, utter humility, recognition of his own sin, pleading with God to save him. And Jesus said, that's the man that God saved. God answered his prayer, not the hypocrite. We don't have any resources in and of ourselves. So that's one of the few examples that Jesus ever gave about fasting, and it was not in a positive light. Jesus was not impressed with fasting from people. So that's key. Uh, Paul and his fasting. Well, his practice. I'll just make the references to Acts 13 and Acts 14. Two of the only places where we see Paul fasting. And there's a common denominator. It was when he was in the early church. One was a church plant. And the other one was the church at Antioch. Where they raised up leadership, elders, pastors, and some people in their body, laid hands on them, prayed for them after fasting. And again, it doesn't mean fasting for three weeks or three days. Many of the fasts in the Bible were just skipping the morning meal or the morning meal and lunch. You don't have to kill yourself in the process. It's a time period of abstaining to focus on prayer, talking to God, seeking his wisdom and his will. And so two times Paul did that with the leadership as they recognized leaders, missionaries and elders. So apparently there's benefit to that. And Paul did that in the church as a Christian. Again, it's not mandated or required. It's just what he did. It's a narrative. It's just telling us what he did. So if we're looking at the model of Paul, when Paul said, be followers of me as I also am of Christ, and Jesus fasted and Paul fasted, then Christians probably should think about fasting at some point in their life. It's a good thing. What about Paul's teaching on fasting? B, zero, nada, zilch, nothing. I remember having a conversation with the pastor a few years ago he said, no, it's in 1 Corinthians 7.5. I said, no, it's not. He said, yeah, it is. I said, no, it's not. He said, yeah, it is. And then he had his King James and I had my New American Standard. It was in his King James. It wasn't in my New American Standard because it's one of those verses again. This verse is not in the earliest, best manuscripts. Uh, so it's not in there. That could be confusing. It was added later. So as far as we know, Paul never commanded fasting. He never taught on it. He just simply did it a few times at key points in his ministry. We should take note of that. So I want to close with the following. That's a lot of stuff. And it makes for a great study to just go through and look at all the fasting that was modeled in the Bible. Uh, so I want to close with that. Just some practical points to keep in mind on number five, Christians and fasting. Number one, it is not commanded or obligatory. It's not commanded. There are church, spiritual disciplines that are commanded by God. Prayer is a command. Communion is a command. Even the frequency of communion is a command, and that's do it often. That's what Jesus said. Fasting, not a command. Two, fasting is a freedom that we can celebrate with great flexibility. Three, fasting seems to be very personal between the person praying and God. Four, fasting is reserved for times of mourning, sorrow, repentance, and unique, special requests. Whether it's give us travel mercies or God, please be merciful to this new elder in our church. Uh, number five, oh, I said it could be personal, but it can also be personal and corporate at special times, including others. Uh, six, it's, it's a tangible, hands-on, very practical way to exercise some biblical disciplines. Like Jesus when he said, deny yourself. That's one of the most practical, real, immediate ways you can actually fulfill Jesus' command by denying yourself. Because we need food, don't we? We crave food. We hunger for food. I I dabbled with fasting a little bit this week. uh, Battling my appetite. It was hard. It was painful. I was reminded of the desires within. We have three basic guttural desires that God intended to be good that we abuse as sinners. And that's the desire for food, the desire for sleep, and the desire for sex. And we have to battle those urges as we are fallen people. And denying yourself of food is one of the most basic ways to deny yourself and just a reality check of reminding you of Jesus's words when he said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, man. Isn't that true? I'm going to go on a two day fast and after two hours, wow, I'm hungry. This is going to be hard. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. What a great reminder from Jesus's words. Also, it's a very tangible way to be reminded of the fruits of the spirit, uh, because in Galatians 5.22 the, the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness. And over our vacation, we were with our in-laws, my in-laws who are believers, and my mother in law is this great woman of prayer. And we were talking about, the, what are the fruits of the Spirit? And then she, her comment was, you know which one I think is the hardest? I said, what's that, Grandma? She said, the last one. Self-control. I said, I agree with Grandma. That one is hard. And when you go into a fast, you are immediately confronted and battling with self-control and reminded of the dependence you have on the Spirit of God to help you try to fulfill the fruits of the spirit self-control. And so that's one of the benefits of fasting is because it can help you focus and be reminded of how weak we are in and of ourselves and how much we need God and what a great blessing the, the help of the Holy Spirit it is to help us overcome and battle against our desires within and then uh, finally, just a reminder that um, oh, number eight or whatever I was on, fasting enhances prayer, worship, and helps us be and helps us to be sensitized so we can focus on God. So I would leave you with that: that begin seeking wisdom, God's Scripture, on how you might add fasting whenever it's appropriate. Your life and your discipline as a Christian. And sometimes, you know what? You don't even need to think about fasting because it will come spontaneously because somebody you love will die tragically. Somebody will get cancer. Whatever it is. And that will hit you and you will automatically lose your appetite and you don't feel like eating. And that's one of the reasons that people fasted in the Bible. They just lost their appetite. Man, I need to just focus on prayer. It happens all the time. With that, let's go ahead and, and pray to the Father. God, we do thank you for our time together, time to worship. Through song, hearing your scripture, interacting with the saints, having blessed fellowship and time in your word. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be our ultimate teacher, taking the truth from scripture that we have heard. Helping us be discerning, illuminating, helping us to understand it and then figuring out how we apply it to our life. God, help us to be more and more people of worship, of prayer, of dependence upon you and Christians who are holy, practicing self-denial. And uh, help us figure out in a real practical way that honors you of how we can practice fasting in a way that pleases you. We commit our time to you. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009